Hi everyone, welcome to the Bummy Chronicles podcast. This is Randy Kim, host and creator of this podcast. As we continue the stories for the season 5's theme, our becoming an LGBTQ Asian experience, I invited my friend Daniel Tanimura to be my guest for this episode. Daniel is a queer mixed Japanese and Jewish trans woman living in the Chicago North Side. I first knew Danielle several years ago through I2I, an LGBTQQIA Asian Pacific Islander group in Chicago. She has been trained as a judo sensei. She is a mother to a young child and has been doing a lot of historical excavation of her family's past, including her family's experience during the Japanese American incarceration period. She has been involved with the Japanese American Service Committee's Legacy Center Archive. In this conversation, we talk about her grandparents' experience about the Japanese-American incarceration period during World War II and the intergenerational trauma that has affected her family in the years after. We talk about her own becoming as a trans woman, mother, and her support for trans athletes during a time when anti-trans laws are also preventing trans athletes from competing. I am thankful for Danielle's willingness to share her story and her family's for this episode. Please check out this episode, and if you like what you hear, please send a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you. Hi, everyone. So, today I am here with a dear friend of mine, and her name is Danielle Tanimura. Danielle is a queer trans mom, artist, and judo sensei of Japanese-American and Bohemian Jewish ancestry. Born and raised in Chicago in an intergenerational and multicultural household, she learned the values of a strong family, preserving history, following her passions, and creating space for intersectional and inclusive communities. After graduating from Earlham College, Daniel worked at the Japanese American Services Committee, JASC, Legacy Center Archive while teaching children and adults of all abilities at the Menonomi Judo Club. Her digital artwork has been featured at galleries all over the city. Daniel's preschool-age kiddo keeps her pretty busy these days, so I want to say thank you so much, Danielle, for being on, and I know that you just put your daughter uh, to sleep a moment ago, so thank you for doing this, and I want to say that I, we connected uh, a couple of years ago to a community space uh, through I2I, and I2I has been a home for a lot of the Chicago LGBTQ AAPI folks, and I gotta say, you know, being in that space during the time that I was living in the Rogers Park community uh, was home for me, and it really taught me so much about the the vast and rich identities and experiences of our Asian, uh, queer, trans, and non-binary communities. And I'm really glad to have uh, to have uh, um, met you through that space. So first of all, I just want to say, how have you been doing during the time of the quarantine? Well, Randy, it's really good to get to connect with you and uh, to have time and space here uh, on your show. The, uh, yeah, the quarantine has been a trip uh, as far as for our family's experience. We've, uh, you know, we're lucky to have between me and my wife, and my daughter, we live together here in, uh, it's the, in the same three flat that my grandparents bought after coming to Chicago uh, after the internment. And where most of my family ended up living uh, together, we're, we're the same way they kind of, you know, came here, found J-Town as their safe place. Like this, this house has now been our bubble <laughs> uh, and what's kept us safe for the past 
over a year now uh, between, so for us, it's been like me and my wife, my child, my parents and my in-laws who just live a mile away. And uh, wow. yeah, with, uh, you know, especially taking in more, you know, having spent more time at home than ever thought we would uh, appreciating all the, all the history there, but yeah. keeping us safe. I got to say, it's like the ancestral protection that you're getting too. living in a place that your grandfather uh, um, lived in. And and I think it's very important to be in places where you're reclaiming those spaces. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, especially given what has happened with in the aftermath of the Japanese incarceration period, which we will talk more into uh, mm -hmm. because because after what happened, the um, the, the the mass, the, the different places that the Japanese community members had, or the Japanese uh, Japanese people had to find places in where you come out of the camps and your home is already gone. You don't mm -hmm. know where to go. And for the Japanese community, it's it was Chicago uh, that mm -hmm. became a safe haven. And it's really important to see uh, the, the reclaiming of those spaces where Unfortunately, a lot of the older generations of Japanese Americans have passed on and especially in the north side of Chicago, where they were residing and most of them have disappeared. But but for younger generations like yourself, there is this nostalgia, there's this connection that I want to be closer to my roots and, mm -hmm. and closer to that history. So I'm really looking forward to having more, com more in-depth conversation about that experience. And, you know, thinking about this current anti-Asian violence, that has been on the rise since the pandemic and really notably this year with the Atlanta shootings and the attacks on our elders. What is going through your mind when you think about your safety and your families? It's, uh, it's been, you know, it's been cumulative and really heavy on my mind, especially, you know, after, you know, in 2020, we brought the, we were out at the Black Lives Matter protests with our kiddo for her first protests, you know, in that whole summer wave, but really throughout the undertone of, you know, the undercurrent of, with coronavirus pandemic that we knew, you know, knowing that as, as much we were bracing for, there's going to be a plague that's going to stop the whole world. There's a part of my brain that noted like, this is going to be bad for Asian Americans. This is just one of those things that we are kind of used to at this point. I'd say any of us, any of us, you know, who've been part of the community here long enough, know that if something happens in Asia, we have to pay for it, whether it's in you know microaggressions or all-out attacks. And it's like it's that you know that sense of you know, there's that trauma that you, you know, that inherited sense of trauma that you, you get ready to guard for that. You, you can feel the tremors before they hit you, you know, and when there are, you know, it's been attack after attack, but then to suddenly have a mass shooting, it's like, I could have told you back in the end of 2019 that there would be something like this. But mm. you don't say that out loud because you never want to don't want to voice that. But it's like it it it's a tragedy, and you know so many people that are 
scared of it. Like, for, and uh, it's like, it's just something you see coming from, you know, the way. Mm. But I mean, for, for me and my family safety, like, you know, I'm, I'm mixed race and it's ambiguously ethnic and, uh, you know, and on top of wearing masks this year, you know, it kind of feels safe. It's a whole uh, special living here on the, in what used to be J-Town here on the north side, not so much of an issue, uh, you know, for my dad being out and around, uh, you know, sometimes worry for his well-being, but, uh, you know, mostly consider myself lucky, but it's like, I think back to one of the last events we went to was Lunar New Year in on Argyle uh 2020 and just like you know heart goes out to the community and there's so many you know even though we can't get together now it's it's real hard to it's it's very painful given uh, actually what you just mentioned was quite painful uh to hear when you mentioned there's going to be a mass shooting like like towards the end of 2019 and i was thinking about this recently and i remembered helen zia put out uh, a piece on her facebook where when the virus started hitting into America's shores, the anti-Asian racism and the violence that came with it started to increase. And I kept thinking to myself, I didn't want to put that into the universe either. But because of what we've seen with America and its, and its fetish for gun violence and white supremacy, it's the makings of what could happen. And unfortunately, we reached to that point back in March. And so it's really exhausting when we have these these assaults on our community day in and day out. When I go into my Slack channel at work because I'm part of an Asian group uh, within my workspace and I would hear stories and you just feel like I just got to find a way to finish my day at work. and. And then when you read your Facebook and your Instagram and, you know, I've been trying to minimize my own social media presence. I know we all have at some point, but there's a part of us that's really nervous as we're looking in the morning and be like, please do not let it be any of my friends that got attacked. And yes, um, unfortunately, there are people that we do know that have been the recipient of some level of violence, whether it's microaggressive or very overtly physical violence. So I, I'm glad that that we are keeping as safe as we can. But I also know that the anxiety of worrying about our parents is very, very much in our minds each day. And there's always this feeling, especially for us being Asian, that there is this honor of protecting our parents. And if we don't and if something happens to them, it's a failure on us that we didn't do enough to protect them. So I know that the, the fears have been amplified from our community. And when you talk about, when we talk about the anti-Asian violence, we think back about the history of anti-Asian violence in America from the, uh, from the Chinese Exclusion Act and what happened with uh, years prior with the, the lynchings in Washington or to what happened during the Japanese incarceration period, uh, for example, for your 
for your dad's side of the family that went through it. And also uh, on the other side, your mom is also Jewish. So there's also this trauma response from both sides of your family when they experience some level of anti-Semitism and racism. So you inherit these responses, these traumas in your body. And so we instantly react the way we do. What do we do to protect ourselves? How do we preserve ourselves uh, in this ongoing fight, in this ongoing battle to to deal with this ongoing uh, ongoing crisis in America? So uh, going into the Japanese incarceration period, uh, your grandfather, was 30 years old from my understanding. I think this is before uh, he met your grandma who was just mm -hmm. out of school. And I right. would like to get a better idea of when did your family arrive to America um, from your dad's side of the family? And what was, or what do you know about what their early experiences was like living in a country where the Chinese Exclusion Act was uh, installed? Oh, for sure. Uh, so on my dad's side of the family, uh, my grandfather's family immigrated to the Seattle area, Puget Sound. So they were on uh, Vashon Island, small farming, small farming community. Um, he was the eldest of, you know, I believe six siblings. And, you know, there were, there's a small community. There were some other Japanese American farmers on the island, you know, it was a pretty quiet life, you know, he, uh, and, uh, but by the time the Great Depression rolled around, he actually left the family to go to LA to find a job to bring in more money to support the family because he didn't want to be, you know, a drain on the, on the family at home. He wanted to be able to bring what he could back. So he ended up in LA and around the same time, um, you know, 1905, around there, you know, my grandmother's family came to, uh, came to the LA area. They actually lived, uh, the farm they ended up getting was uh, in Rosemead, California, which is just outside LA. Their neighbors actually were the Ito family, as in Judge Ito from the OJ trial. So like, <laughs> His parents, yeah, his, <laughs> I forget which parent was my grandma's like neighbor and they went to Japanese school together. That's a whole nother story. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, so her side of the family, so Tani Morasai came in, you know, everyone through Angel Island, they were in Puget Sound, but Grandpa Mudele, the Yamamoto side, my great grandfather came to the States with his wife and two kids, but she actually died in the 1918. Spanish flu epidemic, mm. which, you know, there's echoes of this year all over. Um, and my, wow. yeah, it's been, I've been thinking more about that. And then, you know, and uh, grandpa's side of the family came from Kumamoto prefecture, but uh, grandma's side came from Hiroshima. And, uh, you know, the, mm. uh, but after, so after my great grandfather's first wife died from influenza, he actually sent for a picture bride back from his from Hiroshima, and that's where my great grandma came into the picture. So wow! And uh, talk about that. 
talk about the intersection of that history, what could have happened. Mm -hmm. Because Hiroshima, as we would all know, happened in World War II, the atomic bomb happened. Mm -hmm. So just thinking about the course of action that you take mm -hmm. and realizing what would happen years later, well, what and, would have happened had I stayed, right? Right, and you know, the, in Stark Relief, it, it really is, you know, what happened. One of her sister's you know, ultimate tragedy, like her, their family farm was outside of, just outside of the valley that is the city of Hiroshima, which I've gotten to, I had the, I had the chance to visit in college. It was wow. great, but being able to see it like that, uh, standing at the memorial, uh, anyway, the, it turns out, you know, when the bomb was dropped, her, two of her nieces were actually on the bus going to school that morning. Wow. And uh, they died in the bombing. Oh. And then her sister died from the black rain that fell afterward. Mm. So it really is a situation where, you know, you know, she stayed, she came to the US and, you know, mm. although the, the family is incarcerated, uh, you know, if she had stayed, it's not like it would have been, it would have just been a different tragedy, you know, and my grandma, for years, you know, she would send food and clothes to the family back in Hiroshima after the war. Mm. And, uh, mm. There's a lot of, you know, there's so many sides of guilt and shame about that, you know. And the level of traumas from both being in America and then in the homeland, too. Mm -hmm. while, your fam while your dad's family was incarcerated, then you also had family members who were also killed in Hiroshima on top of that. Yeah. So the the level of trauma from uh, two different homelands connected mm -hmm. to your family is also just, I don't know if I have the words to even describe it, but it, it's breathtakingly upsetting. And yeah. it does a number to, to the generational trauma that comes after this and what it yeah. does to into to uh, to trying to f excavate what really happened and who is left from this level of trauma because when trauma does happen not only do you lose family members uh, violently but also people also go missing mm -hmm. um, and you end up having to figure out did my family member was my family member alive was a kid who might have been an orphan do we even know what happened so there's so much untold stories that get left into the universe that we don't always have the answers to so yeah thank you so much for sharing that and and during the time of world war ii uh what can you say um that your grandfather or your grandfather and your grandmother told you about that period because I can only imagine what the scenario was like uh, during the time of World War II, specifically with Pearl Harbor and what the stage was setting for Japanese Americans during that period. Um, so, you know, right around, you know, right around, I mean, before World War II, grandpa, you know, working as a, you know, working in the market in LA you know, there was already anti-Asian, anti-Japanese sentiment before the before Pearl Harbor. Um, for my 
grandmother, she mostly remembers that time on the farm, you know, with her siblings riding the Model T into town on Saturdays to sell flowers to market and vegetables, like kind of as the most idyllic time, you know, uh, not living in the city. But when news of Pearl Harbor came, you know, like pretty sure like my great grandfather was brought in for questioning um, just because he was one of the prominent flower growers in the in the <laughs> in Southern California and not that he was big time or anything it's just the Japanese uh, Japanese American farmers got you know they got tagged by the white farmers who are bitter that they couldn't grow crops on the same land or you know that they didn't they would want the rights to that land back because they're not american why are they looking at white people get very jealous i will tell you that you yeah know? it's yeah. like they just i mean the only thing that they know how to respond to is with violence when right. when they perceive themselves as very, when they perceive themselves to be so superior but like why did i why why is this person why is this japanese person why is this indigenous person why is this black person doing better than mm -hmm. me right now mm -hmm. and so yes it's, it's this whole convenient narrative that they try to paint that it's always our fault but i'm like look at yourself mm -hmm. <laughs> look at yourself it's like this is what's really wild to me because we get so we, we get so used to hearing the bootstraps fallacy from white people. You should pull yourself up by the bootstraps. But then I guess when we do, they're like, oh, no, this is too much for us. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, unfortunately for your grandfather, he had to be the recipient of this intense resentment, which obviously set the stage for what would happen later on. And he, you know, he was, Grandpa was, he was a real stubborn person and for all the right you know, for the same, you'd say for the cultural reasons, but also just on his own. And that's kind of a common thread throughout his life. And, you know, he was, uh, he saw, you know, and what's funny is, of course, he, as a character, kind of, he wasn't, you know, a big voice in the community or anything. He mostly just saw through all of the, basically, he saw through all the bullshit that was happening to him and why and it just made him mad he was you know he was the sweetest guy he was a loving grandfather but unlike so many people he wasn't he really wasn't willing to put up with it he wasn't willing to humor people or to be quiet he just wanted to live his life you know and in spite of all of the challenges that life threw at him you know he's blind in one eye since he was born, he was the eldest of a large family, he just had to go work and it's like the, the, the economy collapsed just as he's getting to be old enough to be to support people. And uh, that that common thread continued, you know, through his life. But uh, even when he, you know, when so when 1942, February 19th, when the executive order came out, you know, they uh, it just happened that my family, you know, my grandfather who was living in LA and my grandmother's family, you know, were told to report to the same assembly center, uh, to Larry, and then were put on the train out to Gila River, Arizona, 
uh, one of the internment camps, which was actually on a Native American reservation. Mm. So it was, you know, land that uh, was taken back by the U.S. government from the natives as a, and it was actually as a, the only reason that it got built is not that they finished building it by the time people arrived. That's another story. But uh, mm. the reason that the natives let them back in is because so the Department of Agriculture promised to build them irrigation because this is as this is the most remote camp. It's in the middle of a desert that nothing grows in. It's, you know, temperatures of I can't imagine it's all sand. Uh, Gila River camp didn't even have barbed wire on the edges because mm. You couldn't make it anywhere if you just started walking like that's uh but anyway the 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 deal that was made with the native population was you know we promised you an irrigation system and we you know and the natives were upset that uh the government never built it so they used japanese labor mm. they say we have all these japanese americans we're putting in this camp uh we'll just make them build it for you and they so that was mm. that was the deal um i mean my and then my grandpa went and like picked cotton in the fields <laughs> in arizona that mm. was the job he signed up for you know my uh meanwhile my grandma uh, because she was the eldest girl in the family she took care of the family she actually got a job as a babysitter for my grandpa's uh nephews which is how they met <laughs> um mm. so without camp she wouldn't have met grandpa which mm. is still an odd another twist it's like you know it's exactly. like okay you know the camps were terrible they were the you know this reaction to fear and you know expecting that you know if you just lock people away you don't have to worry about them but at the same time my family wouldn't be here if the camps didn't put them together. So it, it's it's inextricable, you know. It's it's yeah, it creates this really new dynamic too. Because I think about this with myself, uh, with uh, my parents. They met in America. My dad escaped from Cambodia. My mom escaped from Vietnam, and had the mass exodus from this colonial this colonial violence that happened in Southeast Asia. I would not have been born and in your case had the camps not happened you would not have been born and that is a hard part of history yeah. that you're wrestling with right. like where what does my existence mean in all of this and yeah. that is what's can be very troubling to us mm -hmm. when we talk about it because you know i've been very critical of white people especially this year um <laughs> and i will say that when we talk about our history versus their history, their history is free from most of that harm mm -hmm. and free from these, these, these um, dynamics that were created from trauma. Like, you know, we were born into uh, trauma already. So it's, it's, I don't know if I had the best way to verbalize that because it's still something that I, constantly process and i know for yourself and i've seen that you have such an interest in excavating history too um <clears throat> because it really does make us want to explore 
where did where did all the other roots come into play what uh what events in america or in japan that led to to my great-grandfather uh, meeting with my great-grandma to your grandparents mm -hmm. and how did this all began and and what conditions were they living in uh, to survive and how did they even survive these experiences on top of it so it's one thing after another and mm -hmm. you talk about um i think when we talked earlier your grandfather uh never told your parents about his own experiences being in the camps is if, if i'm if i'm correct but he actually told you uh, mm -hmm. as you were growing up how old were you when you learned about his story and how did that come about because when you're a kid and you're learning history in grade school, junior high, when the topic of World War II comes up, uh, the Japanese have always been painted as the villains. And, but nothing about the, not so much about the inhumanity of the incarceration uh, camps and the, uh, the atomic bombing. And I think like when I read, uh, I read, um, I can't remember her name. Her name just escapes me. She wrote The Last Cherry Blossom. And mm -hmm. yes, um, Kathleen Birkenshaw. Oh. Yeah. Sorry, Kathleen, if you're listening. Um, but I was listening to her interview. Uh, and I've talked with Kathleen a few times. And, you know, her daughter, when Kathleen's mom was still alive, her daughter came home from school and said all they want to do, all they have talked about was the mushroom cloud. Grandma, you were in... Hiroshima when this happened can you tell about that story and so Kathleen brought her mother to talk to her talk to her classmates about what had happened during World War II to humanize the experience because we don't hear the humanization of Asian people who were affected by American terror so I wonder about from your own experiences of what your grandfather told you and what made him feel compelled to tell you but wasn't able to do so with your uh, dad yeah it's uh so basically the you know the 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 way things kind of go with the japanese american community you have you know we keep track of generations like so we have is so isei nisei sansei yonsei gosei like so so isei would be first generation my great grandparents who came from japan then there's the nisei who were born in America, and most of whom, you know, were in the camps anyway. And even though they were citizens and fought in the wars, did all that, you know, established community. And there's the Sansei, who were either born in camp, and which is where the numbers you get when you look up how many people were incarcerated in World War II. It's the the number varies from 110,000 to 120,000. Mm. That's because 10,000 babies were born in camp behind mm. barbed wire. Mm. But so then you have some sons, some of the older sanseis who are born in camp, and then you have the younger sanseis who are born after. So that's like a micro, uh, you know, generation gap. And then there's Yonsei, which is my generation, versus Gosei, which is my daughter's. And uh, so the sansei generation, if they didn't, if they weren't born in camp. They typically were not told anything, even though like my dad's experience was like there was Japanese American everything. There was 
you know, the, the Buddhist temple that my aunt worked at, there was the, you know, all these picnics we'd go to. And even like my great grandma still had like Hiroshima Ken, specific meaning specifically people from Hiroshima who are in Chicago getting together, having a picnic because there's like different communities within the Japanese American community, which you forget about that. Like, it's not only is it, you know, like you were saying, it's not just a bunch of Japanese Americans from around America being shuffled into these camps all in mixed up who are all in different communities and different affluent levels of society. It's people from all over Japan, which itself has, you know, so many different variations on language, culture, all that, you know, so anyway, so dad grew up with the food and everything, you know, uh, the, not the language. They did not teach him Japanese. That was one thing. They wanted to be super American. It was mm, a yeah. My grandma was a den mother. So they did not tell him about the camps mm. and did not find out about camp until his first semester of college at Michigan State, which wow. was also my mom. So and for a few for a couple, he did not come home for Thanksgiving that year. He was that busted up about it, you know. It's uh, that it was... he's like he basically, you know, there was one paragraph in a history book that mentioned camp. Oh he my god! Called my he called my grandparents was like, "Were you in these camps?" Mm. Like, and you didn't tell me at all. It's like we didn't think it was worth talking about, and it's just, you know, he he was a kid was you know uh protesting the vietnam war doing all this stuff he's in college and he just wow. found out earth shattering like oh my whole family and everyone i know wow was part of this thing that i didn't the secret that was kept so it's a and that's pretty universal experience that sansei eventually came around you know but it's mm. a it's a lot of that's its own trauma and uh you mm. know versus compared to me where I'm living with all this history and I don't remember a time where I didn't know that, you know, I, I still, rem I, you know, my grand grandma passed when I was two. I still remember helping take care of her even. And, um, I, you know, I grew up with my grandparents right here in this house. Uh, and I can't remember a time where I didn't know what camp was or that it happened. And, you know, the, the, the most solid memory I have of it, early on is when the uh you know the bill went through uh for reparations which you know the letter when we received the letter of reparations for both my grandparents i remember exactly where i was in the room just over there mm. couldn't believe it you know it's a letter from the white house i have i have one of the letters framed you know up on display in our in our dining room just because you know it's what it's meant is it it made it you know for all these there's fractures and broken there are broken families in the japanese american community from people who you know refused to volunteer in the war because they thought that it was bullshit to fight for a country that would lock you up there's people who were yeah. i'm gonna go die for my country to prove that we're americans there's hmm. Families were torn apart because they were sent to different detention centers and never, you know, and did hard labor and were never the same person. You know, there's mm. stuff we don't talk about. So many Japanese Americans became alcoholics and addicts and mental mm. health, nothing, you know, as much support as we could give each other, no one would give it to us. 
and no one talked about it because basically everyone got locked up and then we had to crawl our way back to mm-hmm. the middle and there were you know as much as there were service centers that it's the same thing that you said and talked about you know we have to do our own trauma healing while also being traumatized and mm. you know so at least for me i was born into a world where it's like okay this is our history and you know we have to honor that that happened i didn't have to go through the denial process and then reclaiming i was just you know the yonsei generation is basically the first to have been because of the presidential order or not the order but the, the reparations that justified our feelings of you know this was a wrong done to us which wasn't a valid belief to have held before that in public opinion in the community yeah to see the camps as a wrong wasn't universally accepted and it's still a point of contention within the community mm, mm. so you know and this comes up whenever you see you know especially all of uh, all of the our 45th president's years of seeing kids in camps and even obama having that same problem it's like whenever you see displaced people or people trying to find hope and they get locked away instead there's that same feeling you know yeah it's, and i think it's so um it's it's very powerful how you bring this all together here um i was thinking about the conversation that you uh, had about your father and uh, your grandfather when your father just found out first semester in college and not had any awareness that this really did happen and i wonder how that actually affected their relationship because when you are not told that history and you weren't told to you weren't encouraged to learn your family language which is also part of the trauma of the the japanese incarceration period was that japanese towns disappeared there unlike koreatown or chinatown or even little vietnam there aren't very many japanese community spaces across the u.s for that reason alone and so so there weren't a lot of community spaces for those to be together and when the trauma of this happened you know you mentioned that some people get into alcohol families become irreparable mm-hmm. uh, suicides have also right. happened i mean we don't talk about the the ptsd the intergenerational trauma that is still continuing 80 years later and so yeah. uh I wonder about that relationship between your father and your grandfather because of what happened. And I was wondering if you can kind of share a little bit about how that actually affected their relationship. And I, and I empathize with your grandfather because who wants to talk about that trauma, who wants to have to relive it. And also the fear of burdening their children. It's like, I don't want to put my, put my kids through this, but yet even when they have that intention, unfortunately, their own actions, the way they raise mm-hmm. their children. I mean, something would tick them off along the way. Right. Something would trigger them if they're walking down the street, going to a grocery mm-hmm. store. Certain behaviors that I'm sure your father must have 
probably told you about your grandfather, maybe that he's starting to recognize, like, now I know why he acted the way he did because of what he had experienced early on. So I'm, I'm curious about that dynamic between your father and your grandfather's relationship. Yeah, 100%. Um, my grandpa, like I said, he had a really good sense of humor, but he also had a temper and he just did not take shit. And it's just, you know, one of the, one of the ways this came out was he arrived in Chicago in early 1943, like March. 1943, which is basically a year after being in camp. So he was one of the first Japanese Americans to be liberated to the city of Chicago. Mm. And how this happened is he basically went every day to the office at the camp looking for ways to get out, you know, mm. like made it his prime purpose was he applied for the army and it's like, He's mm. blind, not because he believed in it, because he didn't want to be there anymore. He's blind in one eye. He's too old. They didn't take him. So he just kept applying. And it wasn't until uh, the, the head minister at the Wicker Park Lutheran Church sponsored him that he was able to get his freedom, you know, and he you know, came and he lived at the building attached to the Wicker Park Church. It's still there. Uh, and uh, he actually like carved gravestones. That was the job that they gave him. You wow. know, he worked for the cemetery and he wrote a letter back to grandma. We don't have that letter. We have lots of letters, but we don't have that one. Uh, mm. Basically proposing to her and uh, which gave the free free ride for her and his sister, you know, sister and his nephews came on the train out to Chicago and they got married by the same priest that married them, you know, uh, that uh, sponsored him to get out of camp. Sorry. And uh, mm. it's, uh, you know, and from that point, you know, they were renting places, you know, they could because they were married and living here established, they could start floating the rest of the family in, you know, all the brothers, sisters, nieces and nephews from camp, except for my great grandparents, because they're Issei, who ended up staying in camp until like 1946. Oh, wow. After the war was over, yeah, you know. And, yeah. And anyway, like one of the first places, apartments he lived, like there was a fire department across the street and he had to wake up early to go. He worked at the fruit market you know and because the fire department there's someone up at all hours of day and every time he left his house they'd yell tojo hey tojo mm. like to mock him because of course the world war ii was still happening so mm. yeah why not call him the the you know i'm sure they used other words too but that's the story he always told me mm. uh that you know basically imagine you know leaving your house every day and someone being like hey saddam mm. hey hitler how's it going mussolini mm. you know just mm. because and so anytime he left the house he just the preservation that he has to do my goodness yeah just to leave his and just to, to even come back home alive on most days especially when most of the japanese community was already incarcerated world war ii was yeah. still going on and and he is quote-unquote liberated right but no. then it's not a liberation at all that no. was you, you're still under 
white supremacist lens. Immediately. Still, and you're yeah. still being um, surveillance and coming uh, out of your own home. Right. The first person is the fire department that's basically yelling slurs at you. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, I yeah. hope I can come home alive. Yeah. That yeah. is the feeling that I, I yeah. cannot imagine the level of self-preservation that he has to do to keep going. Yeah, it's it, it. So that fire was still there and it just kept burning, you know, and even like my grandmother, who's sweet, but stern, but, you know, real, really connected a lot of people in the community across all sorts of different circles, you know, like when she got her first factory job here in the city. She made friends with people of all different backgrounds because there just weren't that many Japanese. So like people would be like, are you, it's, again, it's during the wartime. It's like, are you Chinese? Mm-hmm. Are you Korean? Are you, we, they don't know anything about Asia, but she would just sometimes be like, yeah, sure. I'm Chinese to the other Polish ladies who are working at the factory. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, why, why make this hard? Why make yeah. this, you know, you just feel like, yeah, I definitely am not at the race of the enemy. I promise. I'm just some nice Asian lady. And, you know, they'd be like, well, you're a lot nicer than we'd expect. You know, those sort of backwards microaggression that still existed in the 40s, you know. And mm-hmm. uh, the invisibility of it, of that, having, which is yeah. also makes sense as to why your father never knew about that history i mean the level of microaggression and the self-preservation that both your grandparents had to do to survive Mm -hmm. to to minimize their own japanese culture right that's what we have seen from that generation is that they had to because it had to be secret you know and so it i mean the that's the weird backwards thing is like okay so like the the cultural traditions of like the buddhist temples the judo clubs, taiko drum, music, food, all these things were preserved, but it was like, it was like a speakeasy, like, because, you know, it's, you know how, like, because mm-hmm. we're in a COVID pandemic, when they put the, like, you can only have no more than 10 people together. Like, there yeah. were rules for that long after the war ended for in America, for Americans of Japanese descent, like, Oh, Japanese people, you can't get more than 10 of you together because then we'll think that you're trying to, you know, uprise against America or conspire to destroy our country. Like literally, you can't just hang out because Mm. you're going to undermine America. So like you had to do it in secret or under the guise of something else like, oh, this is for a church thing. Really, we just want to have a barbecue, but you can't handle Asians getting together feeling free to like enjoy life Mm. like that's what it was so like you had to I wish that they were conspiring to topple the government to be quite honest with you that would have been sick like I would have been I would have been fine with it yeah especially where my mood's been lately but yes absolutely I would have been like well why not yeah and like without a doubt like even Mm. my great-grandma had that fire still because like you know, there were Japanese Americans in the streets protesting after World War II, similar to what happened with like black soldiers after World War One. Mm-hmm. Hey, we died for you. You sent us to the worst places. Give us rights. And in this case, it was let our parents become citizens so that we could at least have gotten something for dying for you. 
and going through these camps. So like, that's why in 1953, the bill passed to let, you know, Asian immigrants be citizens. Mm -hmm. A lot of it had to do with all that blood and time in the desert. There was a, there was one thing they could cash in on and not that it, not it wasn't much, but you know, even my great grandma was bitter about it. She never really learned English and she didn't really care mm. to become a citizen because she didn't feel welcome mm. her whole life here. You know, it's, mm. uh, you know, she, she came here, they bombed her family. She got put in a camp. I'm not learning your language. I'm not gonna, you know, I don't need to vote in your elections. I don't believe in any of this. I'm just here. I have my family. I survived. Mm. Wow. You know, yeah. So it's a uh, it's it traveled across, and you know, as far as between my dad and my parent grandparents, yeah, they had their rough times because you're trying to raise your kid to just you want your kid to have a normal life. Their lives got totally uprooted and interrupted, so they tried their best without any expertise to try and give my dad the best chance. So, you know, straight and narrow. Be American, speak perfect English, not that they didn't, you know, be 100% American, you know, Boy Scout, you know, he was in uh, ROTC, yeah, he skipped two grades in school, he was that smart academically, like, model minority, 100%, let's go, like, that was not what they were thinking, but what they were trying to achieve for their child was to give them what they were denied an entire life mm-hmm. you know and of course there's a price for that you know mm-hmm. and it, that if you if you conceal all that hurt for all that time it slings back around you know mm-hmm. it's a yeah. wow i want to say thank you so much for sharing the in-depthness and the richness in your family's stories and it's and it's very heartbreaking to hear of the level of trauma and what the assimilation trauma also looked like uh, for your family. And I also want to add you into the picture now because uh, mm-hmm. growing up, you were as you were also learning about your own history, you were also learning about yourself as as a person, uh, as a person who was uh, queer trans. And I wanted to get a better sense of what that journey uh, was like an understanding what trans, what transgender queerness looked like for you growing up, and and how did this, um, how did the experiences of learning about being trans, and also about your family's history in a way inform your own identity and experiences? Sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The easy questions, All right, Randy? Only easy questions. Yeah. Uh, no, you know, uh, it's okay. I mean, I mean, I, I <laughs> no, know. I, 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 yeah, I know that's. I know that. I think I'm kind of digging too hard, but uh, no, 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 no. I'm right. It's uh, <laughs> it's just fun. It's just fun. It's uh. So for me, I am. I do follow the uh. You know, <laughs> like, like uh, I do identify as a trans woman, and you know, my pronouns are she/her, and I knew from age four. I am by the book, you know, the, 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 I am what the, you know, HRC would like to have as the narrative as a, you know, that, 
but uh no it was a lot just you know it was just as hard i was you know i i knew from the get-go i was like oh you know on, on top of that like i'm a mixed race kid i'm going to japanese preschool and jewish preschool um and like my moment of like first self-recognition was like i was at jewish preschool i was four years old at the jcc and my best friend there lisa had always had more girlfriends than guy friends always like uh we played dress up a lot and one time she was like let's get married and i was like okay and then she like got put on a dress and she got me a suit and a tie and a hat and i looked in the mirror and was like fuck okay (laughs) (laughs) something's wrong what is this reaction oh no uh there won't be words for this for like a decade or something like we're Mm. gonna we're gonna have to figure this out or uh at japanese preschool one time at uh tampopokai over jsc uh uh fujima sensei uh, a famous onagata you know kabuki performer came and did a performance uh you know onagata meaning you know imagine like classy version of drag basically but doing a performance and i saw i knew who he was beforehand he put on his makeup and suddenly is and kimono and fans and music and sound like wow you're like a woman now this is the thing you can just do and i was got very excited about it and then he took his makeup and stuff off and he left and i was like well okay that's not it but Mm. that's closer um you know and like on top of all that you know i was like all right i guess we'll just deal with this later i don't know what this feeling is and there aren't words for it yet you know and when when the internet became a piece of the home you know unplugging the telephone and running the 60 feet of (laughs) wire to your computer yeah then suddenly it's like oh the vocabulary is starting to flood in but not necessarily you know good images or good messaging on board it's just what exists and you know daytime tv of like uh you know jerry springer jerry springer representation yeah like yeah which did not help to normalize because i remembered even as a queer person as a person who was trying to understand queerness Mm -hmm. growing up and i was a like as i would mention plenty of times in my own shows like yes i was that shy kid and mm-hmm. i saw myself as being normal i'm like i saw what i saw in jerry springer and sally jesse Raphael. i'm like this is not who i am but yet yeah. why yeah. do i right. have this feeling too so right. i think for you daniel it's like this i know i'm a normal person i'm not them right <laughs> yet, i'm not yeah i'm not here for the drama i'm not here to be on the spotlight i just want to be a person but i'm not I don't see myself represented, you know, like, so I, so I guess I'll go rewatch the little mermaid and ask no, no, you know, ask no questions. It's like, uh, and not think any deeper about it, but it's, it's, it's right there. It's that feeling of like, you know, I just feeling lost because there's just there, you know, yeah. Like mixed being mixed race was a part of it, but like just not feeling that representation of like, who am I? How can I live my life and be me? And yeah, the, the drama of like, here's what, you know, I was attracted to gay stories and lesbian stories. And, you know, I have my, 
you know, queer relatives and close family friends. So I, that was like, from the get-go, something that was fine in my family and supported by my parents as like, here's your gay uncles, here's your auntie and her partner. Like, this is just like my life, you know? So like that door was open. I did not have to go through that barrier of like, being queer at all is a shame you know it's just you know i was born in 1983 there aren't words yet you know but right and uh from you know but like my the first person i came well you know like for me in my journey it's like first person i came out to ended up you know we ended up getting married and having a kid together like that's definitely for me it's uh it wasn't till college you know and uh before that every girlfriend i had uh broke up with me at some point after i expressed that you know i think i those 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 you know i guess as the cool or not cool but i guess the internet kids would say you know like when your egg is cracked or whatever the phrasing is Mm. it's like like you know you know when you tell your girlfriend you think you want to be a girl and then they break up with you because that happens a lot <laughs> it's yeah. like my, and then it's like uh maybe i shouldn't do that because it seems to suck a lot to come out to people yeah. and i have the right people and uh you know i wouldn't even when you you know having met you through i2i and mm-hmm. like even like as i started you know my journey into transition which i didn't you know because of I got chronic physical, you know, chronic pain condition after a lifetime competing in judo. Uh, mm. I didn't get this until I got that all sorted. My body wasn't ready to do any changes. And I didn't start transition until I was 30. And uh, right uh, right before Trump became president, no problems there. Perfect time to be trans, you know. It's uh, uh, so it's they're all connected. It's, uh, you know, the the spaces that I started experimenting with self-expression outside of like my closest friends were very white and very, you know, heteronormative, hyper femme white spaces. Mm-hmm. And I was like, maybe I'm not trans cause this is not cool. And <laughs> these aren't my people. So it wasn't until I started feeling like, Oh, of course, I need some 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 Asian people to uh, balance out this hyper white scary time. Yeah. Like, it's not that I'm not trans; it's just that I'm terrified of white people sometimes. And yeah, okay. and there's it. also and also it's like their experiences and your experiences as being trans are very different. The yeah. layers of privilege is clearly there it's very present and you know like when when you uh when you're just when you're on your journey in self-discovery where does your parents come into this as far as their understanding as you were also trying to wrestle with your own identity Mm -hmm. Um, because i know your father is quite uh, very progressive when he also protested against the Vietnam War and and also given what they had experienced with their yeah. trauma. I wonder how that, in the fact that they felt when they started 
perhaps getting suspicious um, as any parents could do like whether um, and maybe their fears being projected onto you that oh my gosh Daniel is going to have another very hard life like my grandfather did or and so forth yeah it's um yeah that's like that's yeah that's good i'm trying to yeah, really trying to nail that down the main thing they wanted for me was you know they wanted me to be happy they wanted me to be safe and they you know that's really their priorities so when you know, like growing up, because, you know, I was a lot of things, you know, I was shy, but also, you know, a very competitive judo player and uh, fighting my body all the time because I was, you know, <laughs> uh, a super heavyweight kids champion, which doesn't feel great growing up, <laughs> you know. And uh, being told all the time by your peers how strong and masculine and tough they are, you are and that you're like a role model for all these. It's like, oh, I don't want to be a male role model. This is not the feeling I want. And uh, it just, you know, I all this exploration I kind of took upon myself. It was uh, something that happened that I did within as opposed to you know doing too much like i started growing out my hair in high school i didn't do i'm not hyper femme i am just like you know if i had to describe it's like i'm just like right now i'm just i'm like i'm mom core i guess i don't know what that is but you know like i just am I, i'm very i'm just a little bit found a butch but not much and it's just because because the clothes aren't it it's not just all about expression it's about like feeling at home in your body mm -hmm. i guess so for my parents when i came out it was a surprise because of course i'm just me you know mm -hmm. i've always just been myself i've had you know they never expected it's not like they raised me in a way that was like boys behave like this girls behave like this and yeah. we don't talk about those who are in between it was literally just be yourself so when i came out and being like i'm trans she her and i'm choosing the name which my mom happened to actually have picked out for when i was born wow because she was like the only person who was uh, there were no sonograms so it was like you know she was the only one who was like i'm having a girl and this is the name i picked out it's <laughs> after her father who passed away when she was 10 years old that's you know in honor of her father daniel klein uh i'm you know she picked danielle and then everyone else was like you'll have a boy and this, they'll have this name and then i was born so my transition it's like yeah, I'm going to use the name that you had because you were right. You had a girl. It's great. Yes. And I mean, uh, your mom was right all along, actually. Exactly. She just happened to have a girl, you know, all yeah, along. Exactly. It just took 30 years, you know, to come around to it. So, yeah, you know, it's. And uh, she probably got her wish, too, in, in a. And, and as fate would have it, too. Because if she had form. insisted. Yeah. If she, ins if she felt like she 
believed all along she was going to have a girl. Yeah. Um, and then obviously the way our society and doctors like to assign uh, genders at birth, mm-hmm. then it's like, well, after all, this is this is what it would lead to. So I think it's really interesting to hear that story. And yeah. And and I'm glad that it seems like your family has been, you know, very much embracing your identities mm-hmm. from the conversations that we had. And I, I think it's it's so powerful to hear that, especially from our Asian communities where transphobia, homophobia, on top of what we deal with assimilation uh, can yeah. be exhausting. But I also do want to point out that there's also joy in in being trans and being non-binary and being queer in our Asian yeah. American communities. We're not a sad story. And I, I would really, uh-huh. and I know as heartbreaking as the experiences can be in all of these intersections, we have beauty in our uh-huh. resilience. We have beauty in our in our bodies, in what we want to imagine ourselves to be in a society that can be quite cruel, but that mm-hmm. we have this optimism that we can change it, that we can transform it, right? And so so I think that's what's beautiful about the LGBTQ API black and brown communities is mm-hmm. that we are trying to transform it into our best being and our best being will transform society. So, you're welcome. Yes, <laughs> that's that's what we need. That was that is exactly that is exactly where it lands, and that's where it needs to be. And I can't tell you like the that's where the outpouring of love comes. Because what's funny is for people who are like again, especially Japanese American, but just general like after coming out and like there was there's people who talk to me community members who talk to me who I've known my whole life and have known my family their whole lives, like having heart-to-heart conversations out of nowhere. And these are people who we never do more than just pleasantries because that's just how culturally you're raised, being like, I support you and all these things. And I see the struggle that your community is going through and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, why does none it, why does no one talk about this before now? Because it just <laughs> felt like me thinking about it as opposed yeah. to anyone saying anything ever so it was like it feels like a refreshing yeah it's I like a day know. late dollar, yeah it's like a day late and a dollar short and i mean i would hear that it from is. old classmates and you're like okay well i mean i'm glad that you feel it now but gosh where were you in 1999 or 2000 yeah 1995 or, <laughs> or, or when i went to go see moulin rouge seven times in the theater is like yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, no one knew that. Yeah, my friend knew. But it was just fun. You know, it's just like, uh, you know, you just, it's odd because, like, you go out, you feel like you have to go out of the community to f- get access to queer spaces. But really, yeah. we're making it for ourselves now. And, you know, it's a, yeah, it's a whole journey. But the, the thing that, I mean, that's that piece that, that rings through is that it's like I'm more me than you know transitioning like you know learning about myself you know myself my relationship to my partner and through to my communities and uh, you know everyone it's like 
I'm more me than I have ever been before. And as you said, like, you're welcome. Like, that's how <laughs> being authentic is, you know, and the, you know, especially like in my role, at, you know, teaching judo, it's like embraced for like, all right, this is, again, it's 2016. Are people just going to be like, nope, you can't teach my kid. You're all predators. Don't even, this is when all the bathroom bills were just getting started yeah. in the backlash to you know, the quote unquote, you know, trans tipping point, which, you know, we can get into visibility versus liberation later, but, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's like same as it's similar to being Asian American, like being, it, you can't deny being visibly, if you're visibly trans, you are trans all the time. There's no hiding. It's like my grandpa being yelled at by the firemen from across the street you can't just hide your face i mean we have masks on but you can't just hide uh who you are that's the opposite of pride you know that's mm -hmm. the whole point of having that callback to it you know whatever your pride in your community so you have to celebrate you have to you know and uh when it comes to like living authentically yourself it's like i am the intersection of a lot of things all the time and for better that means i have all this history and you know knowledge to build on all these communities that i can swim through there's no barriers there but it also does mean that like like we talked about earlier you know when all these bills that are getting passed Mm -hmm. you know, 50 something bills happening right now to try and deny like, like trans kids and of course it's a gateway to adults and trying to bar us from sports and mm. public life it's like you feel it it may not be affecting you immediately but you feel it you know as much as my grandparents felt the posting of executive order 9066 when those signs showed up on you know lamp posts across every city uh, to all of japanese heritage you know you're about to get your life destroyed you feel it in every you know every death of a trans person that happens it's like our our our, our siblings of we're having to you know we're mostly black and brown having to work in legitimate the only legitimate way they can get by to survive are the most at harm. Meanwhile, they're trying to also erase us from public life just in general. It's like, mm -hmm. it's hard to find the uplifting side of it. And I have to like take a step back and be like, I'm trying to bring that. I, I am that. I have to bring that, you know, every day, no pressure, but trying to overextend myself. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, mm -hmm. It's, it's uh it's a lot yeah and self-care is a as i as i've always heard is like a very revolutionary like it's a rebellion in a way too it's it's how you sustain yourself for a long haul and especially when you see policies that are being created statewide like places like in arkansas no less that are trying to make the lives of trans folks miserable and strip them of their rights and dignity and i know for a person who also like for you as a trans woman that has competed and taught judo for years, 
it's uh it's a visceral attack even if you're not practicing in competition there's plenty of other trans athletes who yeah. are in your boat and all of a sudden they aren't given the right to compete or they can't be in the same locker room they can't compete right. in the same uh, they can't compete against men or they can't compete against other women yes. i mean that that's a yeah. whole nother politics and you know sports unfortunately is also still the, like the strong last bastion of homophobia and trans gender norms every gender norms yeah. yes queer phobia absolutely and and very binary yes too. yeah it's uh i mean that's one of the I'm, I'm still proud of this one of the big contributions that i was able to give to at least illinois judo because i've been doing this since i was five you know i'm like great uncle basically you know him and his friends were the ones who brought judo to the non-japanese community here mm -hmm. in chicago and thus became the, the teacher you know the the teachers to almost everybody at, yeah. in some who practices now uh back in 2006 it was 2017's illinois state championship um you know after coming out they you know the other senseis who were like everyone you know who had been had congratulated me and were totally respectful and everything was great just back to work we had you know it came up in policy wise like what do we do for so for trans trans athletes adults due to the you know 20 i believe it's 2015 revisions that made it so that you know trans people don't need to have had surgery before competing which was a rule up until six years ago mm. because they realized oh right it's illegal to be trans and have these surgeries done in yeah. other countries so they just made it a hormone test mm. as opposed to you know literally checking people's genitals before competing which oh. was up until again six years ago but mm. uh well what i helped pay the way for was in illinois teens like not you know people who are under the age of 18 who ha don't have access to hormones are allowed to compete in the gender that they mm. choose even though it's yes it's only men you know there's only boys and girls but you get to choose and that tournament there were at least three trans athletes that got to fight in their first tournament mm. in the gender that they identify as and the thrill of getting to meet these next generation of young trans kids who uh, because of my word and everyone else agreeing that this is just the way life should be, that yeah. people should be able to pursue who they are and play the sport. It was just a thrill to be like in the gym, everybody's got their geese on. I find, you know, I'm, I'm doing all this work in the back room and I see my group of queer kids in the corner because I can just find them. Cause that's my, I got that radar sharp still. And I just go and talk to them like, Hey, how, how's it going? You know, how's it going? Fellow ch kids or whatever that meme is, you know, it's like, <laughs> I was like, I'm really excited that you, you know, of course they probably thought I was just some old person, but I'm like, really, really proud of you and what you're doing today. Oh, you'll I mean, have that conversation 50 years later in that rocking chair and be like, right. You know, 
it's it'll be my one it'll be one of my many many stories but it's like those kids went and fought and this one young guy who's got like he's just so cocky he's got his baseball cap on sideways wiring his keys he's got his girlfriend he's getting ready for his fight goes out there and first match like knocks the kid out <laughs> and i was like yeah making history this is good stuff you know it's like uh you know the uh it's like when you can have little victories on a small scale like you know making sure that your sport in your state is safe for your community it speaks it's and it, and it, and it reverberates it's gonna you know it it's it's not something that goes backwards once you let that you know once you let people be who they are yeah it's the beauty of normalization and and yeah. also like in times where where there's progress being made there's also this visceral pushback and right. and this it's a back and forth that will continue on and but i say that when you have these moments and i'm so thankful that you shared that story too and and in your efforts paying off to make sure that trans athletes have a place in competing and being able to watch being a witness to that i i think it's it gives hope it gives this idea that this could be normalized like 20 30 years down the road you can just sit back and just have your sunglasses on and just chill out and just watch yeah trans athlete compete as if it's a normal as a like as in but you see normal sports mm -hmm. and right now it's kind of at the infancy stage of it and so right. there is this opportunity like gosh i would like to be that person years later where i can look back and say you know what this feels normal now i this was worth the fight and all the mm -hmm. labor that you had to go through and unfortunately i wish it did not have to require such labor and trauma to get to that point but um but there's also celebration when it does happen and i'm really happy for you and in, in sharing that and uh also as we start to wrap up your daughter is about four years old i believe three or four years old yeah she just turned four last week wow and so as you are a mom I wonder about how you would tell her about your own roots and your own identity. And, and do you have that fear of how her school will react to seeing uh, a queer trans, uh, seeing how they would handle seeing a trans um, trans mother or a queer person, you know, I, I think mm -hmm. we're just starting to see this happen, but I wonder what that would look like for you as you are raising your daughter and, um, and, and, uh, taking her into a public school. For sure. Um, so, I mean, from, so from the get go, like, you know, we've got, you know, our, our collection of books, you know, have, surely you know definitely have a variety of stories from creator you know queer creators and trans creators who were writing books about everything from like how a baby is born to just regular stories books or learning about the alphabet that have representation of all the you know people all different backgrounds and identities in them 
so that for her it's normalized you know up until pandemic we were we have our multiple like rainbow families chicago group where we just have playdates for queer families and resources to share you know mutual aid style but also so that kids of all ages could see that their families were valid and not alone and we're keep you know the pandemic has only made those resources stronger in some cases um because you have to have community uh if there's any lesson from all of this uh and you know when it comes to school she has not had school yet we have just we've done homeschooling you know unschooling for preschool because this past year basically got canceled anyway so we were just doing it ourselves uh but in the larger scope we'll see if you know we might because a good chunk of our friends do homeschool might follow that route if she really wants to go for public school it just so happens that like our neighborhood went through you know when i was a kid there was literally nothing here there was like southport didn't you know we'll see what again after all this we'll see what it's like but like southport had a barbershop a liquor store and the music box theater only mm, had flex yeah. movies like that was it and uh now it's gentrified to hell so like <laughs> uh which you know and amazing stuff and art and it's great and also the school here is fabulous and people move just for that purpose uh we'll we'll see because again that's uh what i'd be signing up for is like oh you're gonna be on the the board for the you know i'm gonna have to be on the pta for the asian american and the queer and trans stuff i'm gonna have to be the person that <laughs> is gracing the gears to make it okay so that i can be there like that's that yeah. that's where we're at just you know like i'm gonna have to be my own uh i'm gonna have to be my own advocate just like usual channeling the ancestor energy too exactly just like all right we'll state the obvious i am in fact a person you're gonna have to deal with so respect yes. you know, like that's that's just all it comes down to and um and you know how to kick ass too, since you. Well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, well, but you don't need to resort to that, obviously. But it's always there for you. No, you... it's just right. It's there in my heart that <laughs> yeah. I can kick their ass if it comes to it. But like you know, if uh, when it comes to you know the realities of just living life, like in the abstract, people can be cruel and terrible and think what they want. But when you're in the room with a person, as you know. If you if you're gonna you know if people you know as as kiddo grows up, she knows, mommy is trans, she doesn't know exactly what that means yet. She has friends who are her age who have been non-binary, for a while or, mm. are gender non-conforming and. Quinn, you know, she, she uses she her right now. There was a time last year where she was going through he him they them trying them all for size just because yeah it is part of her vocabulary to know that identity is something that you determine for yourself and mm. she, she has that power 
And it's a privilege to guide a young person through a world where that is open for her eyes and has always been. So, Mm. you know, whatever adversities we meet in the future, we will meet it together. And uh, because that that's what family is you know mm. i gotta say you know it's such a it's such an honor hearing this come full circle when you talk about uh your great-grandparents and going down the family line of the level of trauma that they've experienced but also um in your own experiences being a trans person and now that you are a mother raising a child who is about to navigate into a world where it is very scary. It's quite frightening. But I also know that you've had built such a great group of support from your communities mm-hmm. that you've been with along the years. And, you know, being involved with the Japanese American communities, being involved in Jewish spaces, being involved mm-hmm. in in the LGBTQ communities and working with the intersections of it you see that there's so much beauty in all these communities that gives you hope to position your daughter and who she wants to eventually become and and the freedom to choose what works for her in that uh, moment uh, gender is very fluid um, gender is a social construct as we all uh, as we all say in this community yeah. and and i want to say thank you so much for really uh taking us into this journey. I know that to excavate can be quite exhausting, but I really mm. feel so much energy just hearing your stories too. And I gotta say, I am very proud to have known you for the last couple of years. And I can't wait till uh, the normalization of life starts to slowly come back, uh-huh. maybe a little differently, but I hope to also catch up with you again and some of our wonderful uh, community members because it's such a, it's such a beautiful journey to uh, be a witness to what you're doing and continue to keep sharing your history wherever you go, because I think there's so much power to that. Well, thank you so much, Randy. And uh, I can't wait till the, yeah, I can't wait till we can party again. I can't wait to see what your outfit's going to be. (laughs) We'll see what happens. I mean, I got something up my sleeve, so I can't wait for that because I have been wearing my sweatpants for the past year and oh my god oh, that's all I, I just feel like i've i haven't worn jeans since march who, i can't, last who, who march are you i know <laughs> we'll see what happens when i resort resort back to um where i need to be but right now i'm just yeah. kind of like being very basic and just oh, yeah, no, that's, that's that's the <laughs> gathering of energy so that when this is over you can just dress like oh, yes. prince hey, absolutely absolutely like. I'll keep that in mind and I will promise that that will happen. Okay. Thanks. Good. Well, that is all for today. Thank you for listening. And be on the lookout for future episodes. So follow me on The Bunby Chronicles on Facebook. Or you can follow me on Instagram at Bunby underscore Chronicles. Thank you again and looking forward to sharing more with you.